slovenly trolls, slovenly trolls, we're big, bad, evil girls. Hello, harlots, and welcome to the Slovenly Trolls podcast. I am your faithful host and mistress of this ship, the Slovenly Trolls ship, with my co-host, Charday. Would you like to present yourself? Sure. I, I'm just confused. Are, so you were the captain of this ship, and now you're the mistress. Is that a promotion, or did you get demoted? And if so, who has the power to do that <laughs> on this show? Because it wasn't me. Um, so <laughs> listen, I just have a lot of questions, really. Listen, the way things are going, I'm going to say it's probably a white man. And, <laughs> and I'm Oh, triggered. God. Why? <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> we haven't even started the show yet. Well, I mean, kind of we have. <laughs> um, but yes. Hi. Hello. I am Sharda, your faithless host. I have no faith. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> On that note, today is a special day. Every day of the Slovenly Trolls podcast is a special day. I'll have you know. Exactly. Yeah. We are going to be discussing Swan Maze. If you don't know what that is, we will be giving you all of that information. Don't worry about it. We'll give you context. We'll give you sources. We'll give you deets, the truth, the tea. The hot goss. The hot goss. We will be discussing swan maze, and we will be giving you context on swan symbolism and the D&D inspiration for swan maze. Where did it come from? Where did it go? And why is it here? We'll let you know. <laughs> hey, it rhymed. <laughs> That was not intentional. But before we do that, we do have our monthly Patreon shoutouts. We would like to thank the following people. Becca Melema, Matt Dunn, Scott Williams, Tony Lettinen, Ryan Sheldon, Russ Luzetsky, Nathan Wilson, Dread Ninja, Chrissy Bay, aka Fireboy, Dungeon Daddy Rick of Hammer of the Gods, Jordan McLanson, Nick Andrewson, Casimir Lieber, Carter Haas, Jason Gonzalez, D&D Book Club, Tolkien the Enforcer, Bethany Hobmeyer, Jessica Flood, Ray Kreveling, Zach Hardman, Dave Tolgetsky, and Andrew Massey. And our super special shout out to our producer tier people, our patrons. We would like to thank Chantrell, Jeremy Raymond, Kim Winson, and Lorax. Thank you. Thank you. And if you are not a patron, you can still help us by giving us, you know, a star rating or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, a written review. If you write us a written review, I will 100% write you a, a poem and put it on social media. 100%. You should do it. Do it. Just do, do it. it. Do it. We do have some content warnings for this episode so we will be discussing the following issues and if you are not comfortable with the following please skip this episode and we will see you on the next one we will be discussing potential domestic abuse allegories there are possible references to self-harm and there is some racism because of some of the source material and we are discussing a racist source book called Al-Kadim. If you don't jive with that, skip to the next episode. But other than that, we will be moving on to part one. Nature and lycanthropy context. 
Hey Harlots, Editing Sharday here with some updated content warnings for part three of this episode. We will be discussing the topics of meridicide and filicide in our analysis section. If you don't feel comfortable listening to those topics along with any of the others Lissa just mentioned, feel free to skip this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. Part one. Nature and lycanthropy. Context. Ooh, wow. Ooh. Lycanthropy is kind of a big word, and nature is also a subject we've talked about before. So before we even start this part, we should probably clarify what the hell swan maze are, even though we'll go into depth about it later. Just for your reference, what we're talking about today is a race slash species of women who can turn into swans. So if that's like the image that you got when you heard us say swan maze, you are absolutely correct. We have stumbled upon them in our research many times through many different books. So we just kind of thought they were worth a look-see for their whole episode. And who buddy, who buddy were we absolutely correct in the best and worst possible ways? As you can imagine with Swan Maze, they inherently have ties to nature because they are both animal and humanoid. They also have a tie to women's role in nature in that same sense, as well as, you know, like feminine coded animals. Like there's a lot of different angles here. And we've talked at length about some of them. So the first little part of this section that I'll be talking about is really a, a TLDR for those of you who may not have listened to our episodes on those subjects before. And also for people who need a refresher. We always need a refresher. We've done a lot of episodes. We've talked about a lot of things. I'm just really going to speed run through some of these points just in case we reference them or if you think we may have forgotten like the larger context of women in nature or women turning into specific animals. We got you. That's what this section is for. And also Liz is going to be talking to us about lycanthropes specifically because for some weird reason, swan maze are classified as lycanthropes in D&D. So we have to address kind of really what that means because you think lycanthrope you probably are thinking werewolf and you would probably be right I would say but we'll, we'll get into it usually it's it's weird but I'll go into it it is it's so weird like a lot of DD things it's just weird prepare yourself for more weird really um <laughs> so women's role in nature we have I would say discussed at length this topic we've dedicated two whole episodes on it, episodes 21 and 22, where we talked about women's role in nature, the symbolism of women in nature, the nature goddesses, and how they fit into the D&D of it all. If you want a more in-depth look, please go listen to episode 21 and 22. They're great. And they're also the episode where Lissa found out that all of the nature gods are actually a patriarchy, even though it never actually says that. Uh, it's, it's all a patriarchy pyramid scheme. And that was a fun ride, <laughs> I would say. It's all a fun ride on the Slovenly Trolls podcast. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, so the first our overarching theme that we've really delved into is we have talked at length about the biological connection between women and nature. And I'll start off with a quote that we found in our Women in Nature episode that I think summarizes it pretty well by the queen, Simone de Beauvoir. 
where she says the female is more enslaved to the human species than the male and her animality is more manifest. And really what she means by that is that the female reproductive system, as it works biologically, brings life into the world and nature also brings that into the world. And for a very long time, modern society has latched onto that connection in many patriarchal cultures, reinforcing it into gender roles, aka women are inherently tied with the nature cycle of life and nourishing and growth. So obviously, we should keep them in the house, nourishing the children where they belong. And this is all heavily sarcastic. This is the patriarchal interpretation we want to emphasize. Women's connection to the life cycle wasn't always so narrow, and it wasn't always seen this way, but I'll get into that later in part two. But we have talked in depth about that connection before in our Women in Nature episodes. We also talked about the personification of nature as a woman, which for those of you who don't know, personification means when you give human attributes to non-human objects, ideas, etc., We talked about a lot of different goddesses throughout mythology and history, including Mother Earth and Gaia or Gaia, however you pronounce that. And we also talked about how language and literature, specifically during the Romantic period, uses she, her pronouns for nature, further solidifying women to nature. And the reason that we found they did this is For, again, in a patriarchal society, women are usually seen as domestic and pious and moral and pure, gentle, kind, graceful, beautiful, which are words that are easily connected to nature, while men in this same society are seen as hardworking, industrial, rational, assertive, independent, and proud, which are not as easily connected to nature. And finally, just a little overarching thing to segue into Lissa's context is we actually have noticed some patterns in D&D going into this episode, or at least I have, where feminine-coded animals in D&D are a pattern just in general. And swan maze fit into that kind of pattern of feminine-coded animals and female characters and gods within the D&D multiverse having connections with those feminine coded animals and it was it's just worth noting cuz we might be referencing that a lot today we've talked in depth about unicorns that's episode 27 and in D&D unicorns are very feminine coded despite unicorn mythology being almost exactly the opposite of that. And we've also talked a lot about goddesses in D&D. And goddesses actually have a lot of feminine-coded animal forms or favored animals, which I don't think we've really ever talked about in depth. I sometimes usually cut that out of, you know, when I do my like lore deep dives because I it usually just isn't relevant. But I think it's worth bringing up today because it's super relevant. Miliki, who's a nature goddess, she has ties to unicorns. LaRue, she is a actual unicorn goddess. So those are two, well, one feminine coded animal. Loth, the spider queen, 
she obviously her entire personality is about spiders spiders have a matrilineal society so that can also be seen as feminine coded and having a connection with that kind of animal alistry her daughter one of her favorite animals is a cat and along with that shiras one of the sex goddesses that we've talked about she also has a connection to cats cats are also seen as a feminine coded animal <laughs> and most recently luthic has this whole mama bear mentality where bears are sacred to her and they are seen as very strongly connected to her role as basically the matriarch of the orc pantheon there are all of these patterns that we've been seeing and i think lissa will get more into it towards the end of the section here but it seems like we have the workings of a whole new episode after this one. I don't know about what you're thinking, but I'm seeing a lot of weird patterns about feminine coded animals, and I don't really know what that means yet because we haven't looked into it. But I think it's worth noting because we see it. Yeah, we do. But we've also we've also just discussed how women in general, how they've been portrayed as monsters. And I feel like women as monsters also go into the category of a monster is something that's animalistic, something that's uncontrollable. And I feel like that also has to do with that as well. Oh my God. Yeah, you're t- absolutely. Yeah. There's so many angles we could go with that. Yeah. But getting to the point of what I'm here to talk about, as I said in the beginning, so it turns out that when it comes to swan maze, we are actually talking about a form of lycanthropy. And I know when I say lycanthropy, you're like, well, wait, werewolves? Like, how how does this have to do with werewolves? So I'm here to tell you exactly that. Because apparently, if you read about lycanthropy, swan maze are a form of lycanthropy. I'm going to define what lycanthropy means in D&D, and we're going to discuss a little bit about how it's different in the Swan May context from shape-shifting, polymorphing, and wild shape. Into mm-hmm. E, in the Monster Manual, there is an explanation of what they mean by lycanthropy, and it's, it's literally just called lycanthropy, comma, general. And what they talk about in 2E is, it's a bit convoluted. I'm going to, like, what? just put it. <laughs> I'm shocked. As, as with other D&D lore, you know, like, they'll say one thing and they'll be like, actually, no. You know, it's not just <laughs> one, this one thing. It's, it's all of these things, you know. So as yeah. normal D&D lore, it, they say it's lycanthropy, but they also say it's something called therianthrope. Therianthropy. So they actually call lycanthropy a misnomer because lyca means wolves, lycanthropy equals werewolves, but therianthropy, which is what they actually mean, is animals. It's a bit confusing, but swan maize are women who turn into swans, therefore not lycanthropy, but therianthropy, but also still listed under lycanthropy, comma, general. I wonder why. Is it because people know the term lycanthropy more than therianthropy? Because that's the only logical explanation I can think of if we can even attribute logic to this. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could tell you, but um, I do not have the answers for that. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> But let's go over a little bit about lycanthropy since, or slash therianthropy. It's, I, I don't know which one we're talking about anymore, but it's, it's under the title of lycanthropy. So, you know, we're going to keep going with that. So there are different kinds of lycanthropy. 
there are two main categories. There's natural lycanthropy, which essentially just means it's hereditary, you're born with it, you are a quote-unquote true lycanthrope, or you are infected with lycanthropy. So you are either bitten by something, you have a spell that's cast on you, or maybe your family lineage is cursed. You know, I guess a tiefling could be formed from a lineage that's cursed by something. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that could be seen, I guess, as lycanthropy. There is also the Swan May one, which is it's induced through using a magical object. Essentially a magic item that causes something to turn into a lycanthrope, like the Swan May, that who willingly accept feathered tokens to gain the ability to shapeshift. I wanted to have this discussion because it's a bit, as it is with D&D, it's a bit confusing, but like we can have maybe a, a short discussion on how we think in the case of turning into a swan, how would it look different with lycanthropy to like something like shapeshifting or polymorphing mm -hmm. or wild shape. And the first one, because you can also turn into swans through just shapeshifting. And yeah. I wanted to pick your brain of like, how do you think with just shapeshifting is I, cause I would think that shapeshifting is like a more generic term of like, right. Maybe like a creature with this innate ability, supernatural ability mm -hmm. to change into a form, maybe a swan or something else. Yeah, shape shifting, it seems more cosmetic from how I understand it in the D&D &D rules as as far as I'm aware as a DM and as a player. Like shape, when you can shape shift, it's usually due to you having some innate ability or like magical or otherwise to change your form. So the first thing I think of is a, a changeling, which is a race in fifth edition mm -hmm. where you can at will change your physical appearance. But just because you changed your physical appearance, like let's say you shifted from like a more humanoid form to appear like we'll just say Daddy Strahd, the vampire, you don't inherit Daddy Strahd's abilities. You just look like him. So it's basically like the equivalent of casting a disguise self spell is kind of how I look at shape shifting. Even though it's not categorized as a spell, I think, for the beings that have that ability. But it's it's way more cosmetic. Okay, so what about polymorphing then? When I think of polymorphing, like polymorphing, you said casting a spell. Like polymorphing to me is more of a similar kind of like a magical effect specifically. Maybe not mm -hmm. like an, I mean, I guess you could have like an innate spell casting ability to polymorph yeah. into things. But I think that polymorphing, and I, I don't really know if poly, I'm not really familiar with polymorphing because I only started playing with magic casters, but is that not one of the spells that you can also turn into other things, just not including animals? Yeah, so polymorph, there are two spells by fifth edition because most of my knowledge is fifth edition D&D. &D. So you could use polymorph to turn, I don't think you could use shape-shifting to turn into a swan but with polymorph you could turn into a swan you can turn from a humanoid into an animal you mm -hmm. can use it in battle you could use it to again you can just use it as a disguise self spell if you really wanted to but you do get the abilities of whatever animal 
that you transform into if you say transform into an animal like all of your ability scores are replaced and it's way more advantageous as a spell to use in D&D so if you transform somebody into a swan they have swan stats (laughs) but it, it can only be at a certain challenge rating true polymorph which is a very powerful ninth level spell you can transform into dragons if you want to but you can also transform somebody into an object so like a desk and they if they uh, are like that uh-huh. for an hour they're just a desk permanently okay and then like the final one that i could think of for like something that's similar and i, I feel like it's somewhere in between a magic spell and shape shifting is the druid mm-hmm. druidic feature uh wild shape which is the ability to usually animals to turn into animals but i know that there is different subclasses where you can change into constellations or if you are a circle of spores you just exude spores everywhere that do damage for you yeah so every druid has the ability to wild shape into something that is a base class feature you can transform into any animal of a certain challenge rating and that challenge rating goes up the more powerful you are so you could as a druid just transform into a swan and it would work basically like polymorph but you are able to cast it without using a spell slot and you're only able to cast it on yourself. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And you can get all of the attributes of a swan, uh, but you can also, you know, getting into the nitty gritty, you can also use your wild shape to do other things. But baseline, every druid could transform into a swan if they wanted to. So you could just make the swan princess, which I'm not saying I don't want to do that, um, <laughs> but I want to do that real bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be really cool, mm-hmm. now that you say. Okay, so basically, swan maids are lycanthrope, which means that they're not shapeshifters, they're not polymorphing, and they're not really wild-shaping either. So they're like their own class, well, not really class, but they're, they're, they're doing their own thing, because lycanthropy is like its own thing. Even though, right. in a weird way, lycanthropy, you think it's either a curse, or it's hereditary but like this is Mm -hmm. their their own weird thing because it's not a curse it's not hereditary they use an object to cause it to happen but it's still not a spell even though you would think it could be like a a magical object that like grants them the spell to turn but it's instead considered a lycanthropy a form of lycanthropy, which is kind of weird, but also very cool. It, it should also be said, too, because I know you have one more point to make before we move on to part two, that the, also the reason that they're so unique is that only women can turn into them, which is what really caught our attention. Like, they are a women-specific mm-hmm. species. Mm-hmm. We're not just talking about swan maids because we like swans. I mean, I like swans, but like... There's something else there <laughs> that needs to be dug into. Mm-hmm. It's that whole animals and women thing. Yeah, exactly. Because women are connected to nature. Yeah, for all the reasons that we've talked about already, basically. Like women just have this innate connection to nature and mm-hmm. you see that connection in multiple places, you know, in our culture, but also just in D&D. Speaking of women being connected to nature, so I wanted to do a little bit of, I know we haven't done stats recently, but I wanted to look a little bit into lycanthropy more so in terms of looking at how does gender 
play a role in lycanthropy and to see like I didn't do a very in-depth analysis like I didn't I looked at 2E, the monster manual, and I did look through the lycanthropy section on the Forgotten Realms wiki page. So it's not like an in-depth analysis. Take it with a grain of salt. It doesn't have all the information. But I wanted to see if I could, just based on those two, see if there was a connection between gender and what kind of animals these lycanthropes turn into. And my question kind of going into it was, are there forms of male-only lycanthropy, female-only lycanthropy, and or are there like male-coded forms of lycanthropy or female-coded forms of lycanthropy? So I have some stats for you. (gasps) The return of stats! I'm so excited. And I do think that potentially we could also do a whole episode on lycanthropy. So this could be a future episode, obviously. Yeah. I went through and looked kind of into whether or not they had a gender listed as them. If they didn't, I did give them the benefit of the doubt. So if there was no gender listed, I just listed them as both. Yeah. Overarchingly, there is a big benefit of the doubt because the wiki is very broad. It didn't go into way the, the amount of detail that I would have wanted it to go into. So let's get into it. There were a total of 40 types of lycanthropes so many four zero 40 types of different kinds of lycanthropes so 40 different animals basically that you can turn into both male and female were 90.2 percent so out of the 40 90.2 percent i put under both genders male and female Mm -hmm. there were three female-exclusive lycanthropy versions, I guess, which is 7.3%. And that's not even including Pegasi, which supposedly Ed Greenwood has been quoted on a forum saying that Pegasi are female-only. But what he said on a forum contradicts actual sourcebook material where there is an example of a male werepegasi in lore. Mm. So Ed Greenwood had, has both said that they are female only, but there is in existence lore where it says there was a male werepegasi in existence somewhere in D&D. So I didn't even include that in the female exclusive lycanthropy. And I did not include were tigers, which in 2E are female only. But like in other versions, they were... Yeah. And I did not include where serpents that were heavily feminine coded. So in total, there are three female exclusive forms of lycanthropy, but then there's where pegasi, where tigers in 2E, and where serpents that I did not even include in those sets. But they, they could be if we did more research on mm-hmm. them. Do you want to know how many male slash male coded forms of lycanthropy there were? Zero. Well, actually, no. One. One! And I don't even know if I can count that one. So it could be zero. It could be zero. Because the one that I listed as male exclusive, it's a wear stag. Now, stags, usually male. Yeah, I think stags are male. Yeah, they yeah. are male. And this one I put down as masculine coded. But this one was only mentioned once in a source book as one NPC that was listed... Mm. 
using pronouns he, him. Okay. It was one NPC that was mentioned in a source book, and it doesn't exist anywhere else other than that one brief mention with pronouns he, him. So I don't even know if that counts as male. I would think, I think you made the right call saying that it was because from what I understand about stags, stags are just male deer. So I mean, it is a masculine transformation. Mm -hmm. But in D&D, you can be whatever you want. So I would love to advocate for anybody to turn into a stag. But Mm -hmm. if this is from like 2E or 3E, I highly doubt that's what they meant. (laughs) (laughs) Highly doubt. But if we compare how many female exclusive there were, which were three, plus were pegasi, plus were tigers, plus were serpents that are feminine coded. That's a total of six. And we have maybe a 0.5% for a male coded one or a one if we give it the benefit of the doubt. That's not surprising. It just seems like whenever there's a female anything, they make a point to emphasize it. They're like, because it's not the norm, because we live in a patriarchy and masculinity and males are the norm, apparently. Mm -hmm. So like every time we've seen D&D, like that's why it makes it so easy to sometimes find subjects to talk about because they have a way of just saying, oh, this is a female only clan or this is a female only class or only women can be here. But all of these other things that they mention are more masculine because that's just the default. Mm -hmm. So there could be an even distribution. Mm -hmm. We just don't know because that's not the way – that's not the same – they don't give them the same weight ever. So it's it's not surprising that it's like this at all. Disappointing but not surprising. Yeah. So when we said that women are nature-coded, they are also nature-coded – in the form of lycanthropy, which is kind of what I would assumed would happen, but it was just disappointing to see as well. So I do have some findings listed here that I put down as, you know, interesting things that I saw. Benefit of the doubt, I was surprised going into this that felines were not more feminine because I did list them in different categories of flying types, terrestrial types, aquatic types, and just stereotypical like wolf types because there were a bunch of different werewolf types as well felines were not very feminine there was a were tiger but only in 2e so like the overarchingly were tigers were not even female coded but i was surprised because we know that there are a lot of goddesses who have links to cats and feline beings and actually the most female category of these types was flying types so things with wings and simply because of swan maze and i'll talk about their sisters the bird maidens that that i mean that just goes to show that swan maze are really just a case study mm-hmm. for female lycanthropes in general we, we accidentally stumbled upon the best case study for this yeah <laughs> the most male as i said was the wear stags and they were only mentioned in 2e volo's guide to cormir and just this one male character on bypassing being a he, him pronoun. And we, as I said, the feminines and feminine coded beings were specifically mentioned more in terms of like lycanthropy. Right. Because male is the default. <laughs> yeah. So like with prestige classes, there are more gender-based forms of lycanthropy that are feminine coded or feminine only. Yeah. And I feel like... 
we should be advocating for an equal amount of male-specific, female-specific, non-gender-specific stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. it should be equal. It should be varied. There shouldn't be, like, one obvious ahead of the other. So the fact that female-coded stuff is mentioned more, we should be rejoicing to that as a feminist podcast but (laughs) yeah yeah so i'm not i'm not necessarily saying that it's a bad thing that there are female coded forms of lycanthropy i'm just saying it's interesting that we're seeing this trend yeah it's it's not it's not like it's a negative thing because i think that there needs to be variability so i i just think it's interesting that there's not more male specific prestige classes and male specific forms of lycanthropy unless you count the fact that there are so many prestige classes and forms of lycanthropy that are just they assume it is inherently male or for, for men or aimed yeah. towards men i i don't really know so this is this is more of like findings that are interesting i'm not necessarily saying it's a good or bad thing i'm just saying huh i noticed this and this is what we're trying to do is we're trying to piece it together and consider like why why is it this way and there are a bunch of different theories that we could probably talk about yeah. later but yeah i don't think it's inherently looking at the statistics of it all taking the humanity all of our emotion out mm-hmm. of it seeing one just overtly over the other is not inherently a bad thing however i don't trust dungeons and dragons <laughs> Like I'm sorry, I don't. So <laughs> in, the, in, in the con in, in the bigger context of who made the game, who it was aimed for, it's it's suspicious. Maybe is the best way I can put it. Like we're not we're not saying it's bad, but it's it could be suspicious. Why did they do so? Why is it this way? And because we've talked about feminine prestige classes before Mm -hmm. we know they've done a bad job of it because they usually always revert to stereotypes and sometimes when it's male only they also revert to stereotypes Mm -hmm. so anyway we could probably get off on a whole tangent i just wanted to make that clear saying inherently the statistics just because it's more feminine coded the statistics don't really tell us anything it's how they represent those statistics in the actual books that we are concerned about and that we're going to talk about yeah But that's all I had on lycanthropy. So how about we move into swans and the patriarchy context in part two. Part two. How the patriarchy ruins swans, a.k.a. the larger context, a.k.a. Chardet goes on a rant about the patriarchy and swans. (laughs) Because I'm back, baby. I'm doing the contacts this time. Bet you thought you saw the last of contacts, Charday. Nope, you have not. <laughs> you have not. I feel like I need like my own special like nickname or something for whenever I do the contacts because it it's the Charday special, the Charday special, which is usually the meat juice, the juice meat, the juicy meat. But now it's the mash, <laughs> the beans. <laughs> <laughs> the banger the bangers and mash the bangers and mash <laughs> welcome to the bangers and mash section uh where i'm going to talk about how the patriarchy ruined swans and swan mythology and i'm going to it it was it, it was my problem and now it's all of your problems too because <laughs> that's where this context led me for this section i just really wanted to nail down the i like, where D&D got the idea for Swan Maze, a.k.a. what started 
this whole species of women-only lycanthropes. And that, of course, led me to the symbolism of swans. And that, in turn, led me to how those swans got those symbols and what mythology spawned out of those symbols. And, um, well, who, buddy, wouldn't you know it, it's tainted with the patriarchy. Pun intended. (laughs) Absolutely tainted from head to toe. And we're going to talk about that today. And disclaimer, a lot of this research, and in fact, most of this research, is mostly on white swan symbolism, which I believe the main species of that swan is called the whooper swan. Oh, do you want to know a fun fact? Please. Hashtag Finland plug, the whooper swan is the Finnish national bird. No way! Uh-huh, You're yes lying. way. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. Oh my god! Look at that! <laughs> This whole section is a Finland plug. So is it your fault that the patriarchy ruined this then? Um, you got to confess now. No. I want to say no. I don't believe you. <laughs> You're not convincing me. You, but... you, you don't believe me at any point in time. So this is like not my fault. That's true. Yeah, that's also true. I'm just highly skeptical of everything that you say. So I guess this section is now... Will Lissa and her people, because obviously she speaks for all Finnish people. Obviously. Will they be proved innocent or guilty? <laughs> the stakes just got a lot higher. <laughs> Let's start off with where the fuck did D&D get the idea for Swan Maze? Because that's where I saw, that's where I began my journey and that's where we will begin our journey in this section. So as I was searching around, I found this old web page that doesn't even technically exist anymore. I found it on archive.org. And it's a whole web page titled Literary Sources of D&D by someone named Artie R. DeVark. And no, I don't think that's his real name. <laughs> I think it's just a blog handle. So I don't, I can't really speak to his credentials on this, but it is a very long, exhaustive list on all of the different monsters and archetypes that D&D has used in the past. And he kind of gives his two cents on where he thinks they came from. He has a whole section about Swan Maze, thank goodness, that made my job a little bit easier. And his number one contender as to where D&D, the people who made D&D, where they got the idea for Swan Maze, is from the character of Alianora from a book called Three Hearts and Three Lions by Paul Anderson. And for those who are unfamiliar with the book, all you really need to know how we're going to be or how I'm going to be using it in this section is just with the character of Alianora, who is a love interest for the hero, naturally. And she is what is known in the book as a swan maiden. And that title was lifted directly from folkloric swan maidens, according to this Literary Sources of D&D webpage. And so learning that and learning that term, swan maiden, That's really where my research kind of took off. Mm -hmm. And I did make sure to double check because, again, I couldn't 100%. I didn't know who this RDR DeVark guy was. I wanted to make sure that he wasn't just talking out of his ass. And so I double checked if Gary Gygax had ever listed like Paul Anderson, the author of Three Hearts, Three Lions, if he had listed him in one of the back of the monster manuals or the DM's guide or something. And I found this article from Dragon Magazine number 95. This is written in 1985. And I think this has swiftly become one of my unironic favorite articles I've ever read in Dungeon Magazine. Would you want to know why that is? 
or Dragon Magazine. Why? It is called The Influence of J.R.R. Tolkien on the D&D and AD&D Games. Why Middle Earth is not part of the game world written by, wait for it, Gary Gygax himself. Him, wait, not influenced? So uh-huh. you're saying, he's, he's saying uh-huh. Tolkien did not influence him in any way, uh-huh. shape, or form. And halflings were definitely not called hobbits in AD&D, which they absolutely were. Oh my god, I wish I could go off on a tangent about it, but I know we're not going to have time. I might save it for After Dark, our after show, Patreon exclusive, plug, plug. But yeah, basically, for the context of this article, TLDR, it is an article written by Gary Gygax all about how D&D is not like Lord of the Rings, <laughs> and even though he admits that it kind of is towards the end. It's very strange. It's counter, it, it counters itself, which is what, D, like, like you said, like D&D just is a swell of contradictions. And this article is not an exception to that. However, this article did prove useful to me, not only to make my day when I found it. But also it confirmed Gary Gygax listed all of his quote unquote actual influences. And one of those was Paul Anderson. He lists Paul Anderson as a major influence of D&D and the mythology that Gary Gygax had a hand in crafting for Hmm. the game. So I think it can be safely assumed. We can't say for sure. Obviously, he didn't actually list the book. But I think it can be safely assumed that he was familiar with Three Hearts and Three Lions, mm. the character of Alianora, and the swan maiden form that she has in that book. So, swan maidens. Let's talk about them. Because, oh man, do I have a lot to fucking say. And I'm sure, Lissa, you will too after I'm done. But you gotta wait just a little, just wait a little bit longer. Wait a little bit longer. Because you can't really talk about swan maidens without talking about swans and swan symbolism because I tried to trace this back as far as I possibly could for the benefit of the doubt, for where this stuff actually came from, to not excuse Gary Gygax and early D&D of some of the stuff they have in Swan Maze in their own lore, but to give an explanation as to where this came from. The symbolism of swans from what I found, and a lot of this comes from a British ornithologist. He wrote a book called The Folklore of Birds, an inquiry into the origin and distribution of some magical religious traditions. He says that the symbolism of swans dates back to the Bronze Age, which is 3300 BC to 1200 BC, before Christ. I think this is the farthest back my context has ever taken me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to speak for you, Lissa. Has your context ever taken you back to the Bronze Age? Because I don't think we've ever gone that far back. <laughs> I don't think so. Not that I can remember. Slovenly first. Slovenly. This is what you come for the uh, bangers and mash for. <laughs> the Bronze Age. So in the Bronze Age and throughout time... The swan actually did not start out as a symbol as we know it today. So when I think of swans, I think of like purity and love and all these nice things. And I also sometimes think of the Queen of England, RIP, because that was her, I think she had a connection to swans or something. She owned, she owned all the swans in the UK, I want to say. I think you're correct. I think that's what it was. So that's usually what I thought of. The Queen purity, love. But the swans did not start out as that. 
In fact, swans started off as a symbol of life, but more often, death and death's role in life. Ooh. That's right. Swans were goth as fuck. Oh my <laughs> like, God. Amazing. When I found that out, I'm like, I'm already about this. How is this going to be ruined? <laughs> because that sounds amazing. We know swans now, and we know that's not what they're known for. How did that change? So mm-hmm. I briefly looked into that. A lot of this was talked about in the ornithologist book that I mentioned. So he talks about how swans ushered in the souls of the dead through Irish and Scottish folklore. And I also stumbled upon another myth from Neolithic Europe. And they linked swans also with ushering the souls of the dead and something called the divine hierarchy and this divine hierarchy actually used to be dominated by a mother goddess so a woman at the top and the king's role in that he was just her consort and so every year (laughs) he was sacrificed (laughs) at the end of the year To be replaced by another consort. And the swans in this Neolithic European myth, they carried the soul of this sacrificed king. And the haunting calls of these swans were seen as cries of mourning for the mother goddess's consort. And so from as early back as Neolithic Europe, you have women, like a a mother goddess figure, tied to swans and them having equally important roles within that time period which is fascinating because I again I had like an inkling that swans were tied to like purity and womanhood Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize it actually started as like they were equals and they were equal parts of like the life and death cycle I found that fascinating Mm -hmm. and on top of this it's also very bad luck (laughs) to fuck with swans (laughs) in this time don't fuck with swans especially in Irish and Scottish folklore I found a quote that says, no good Isleman would put taunt or hurt that same wild swan, although evil men did both, leaving a woman lord to keen over her mate. They will fuck up your shit. I think I read a story, too, of like a swan being responsible for the burning down of an entire village. Oh, my God. We love them. That's amazing. Stan. So moving away from like the Bronze Age, the Neolithic era, At some point, I didn't have time to construct an exact timeline, but sometime after this, swans started taking on new meanings of love and sexuality and purity and virginity and overarchingly becoming a female feminine symbol in terms of, you know, all those things I listed. And also, I just think swans are intrinsically tied to women. You see you know, movies like The Swan Princess and Black Swan and the ballet The Black Swan is based off of. Like, women and swans kind of have this innate connection. And I have like a, I have to TLDR this, but I have a conspiracy theory, you see. <laughs> hmm? And it's also a religious tangent. <laughs> conspiracy? Religion? Hello? Please, please tell. Please tell. So I came upon this book called The Living Goddess by Maria Gambutas, who is an archaeologist and anthropologist. And she studied religion in pre-patriarchal Europe. And she says, from 7,000 BC to 3,000 BC, religion focused mostly on the wheel of life. So birth, nurturing, growth, death, regeneration. 
old European social structure, according to her, was matrilineal, with succession to the throne and inheritance passed through the female line, which kind of lines up with that Neolithic myth that I mentioned. The major symbol of this were goddesses and women. So remember when I said that women's biology wasn't always confined to one role inside domesticity? Uh This is what I meant by that. Uh (laughs) Women used to be at the head of society. And my theory is the Bronze Age borrowed this kind of early symbolism of swans from pre-patriarchal Europe. So the Bronze Age started in 3300 BC and Wheel of Life religions died out around 3000 BC. So you have like a 300-year buffer, which may or may not explain where those influences came from. So swans represented the life cycle. Women represented the life cycle. But as women's role in society changed, so did – and what that – her role, connection to the life cycle meant, so did swan symbolism. So that the two – because the two are always entwined. So as women changed, swans changed. Women became domestic. We're not leaders anymore. Swans were not goth as fuck death omens. <laughs> and instead – were about love and purity. So really, it's the patriarchy's fault. Hashtag bring back death swans. Thank you. Anyway. <laughs> Amazing. Beautiful. I say this all. It seems like a bit of a tangent, but this all has a connection to the swan maiden myth, which is where I believe, through my research, swan maze of D&D came from. So let's talk about those swan maidens, baby. Let's talk about them. There are many versions of this myth, which is just really called the Swan Maiden myth. And the origins are mostly believed to be from India, but it appears through multiple cultures. And also, shout out, it has a special appearance in the Old Norse Edda, which I believe we've talked about before, but I forget when. (laughs) Uh, It was in episode eight, one matriarchy to rule them all because it was the context of dark elves. Hashtag Svart Elf. What? Okay, so it has an elf connection. Love that. Love to see it. I would like it to be with a better story. Um, (laughs) But I can't, beggars can't be choosers. So... The story, I'm just going to give a little story time here because I feel like I I could just talk about the Swan Maiden myth, but I think it's better to show you with mm-hmm. a little story. Once upon a time, there was a hero who stumbled upon a group of bathing women in the forest. Next to them, he found cloaks made of swan feathers, revealing them to be transformed swans. He steals one of the cloaks and refuses to return it until one of the women agrees to marry him. One of the maidens takes him up on this request and leads him to her father's house. And from here, the swan maiden myth actually has two different paths where the hero must go on a quest. On the first path, upon meeting the hero, the father gives him a difficult task to prove his love. On the other path, the hero ends up hiding the swan cloak to keep his new wife human. The woman eventually finds the cloak, and as soon as she does, she flies away. The hero must then go on a quest to find her, and the story ends. Both of those two paths come back together with a happily ever after, where the hero and the wife are reunited 
Because why let women make their own decisions? Am I right anyway? <laughs> what? Why does this just remind me of the virgin capture? Oh my God, myth? it does, doesn't it? About women being used. <laughs> yeah. I hate that it's a patriarchy. I hate that it's men asking for for permission from other men to marry daughters. I hate that it's mm -hmm. using women and it's a damsel in distress. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm just, I'm convinced there's something about the virgin capture myth in this and it's unicorns and swans, swans and unicorns. There's something significant <laughs> about swans and unicorns and virgin capturing. Well, it's it's also, yeah, because swans have a connection to purity, right? And so do unicorns. So that's not a stretch at all. Uh -huh. And also the women in this story are objects in both the virgin capture myth and also in the swan maiden myth, which is classified in my research I found as a supernatural wife story. So it's actually part of a bigger motif within folklore. Mm -hmm. But Swan Maiden myth is cited as a pretty, uh, like the standard for that kind of motif in folklore because mm -hmm. it's pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. It, it's, I mean, it, it checks out. I hate it <laughs> so much for the reasons that you said, but obviously, you know, a lot of those opinions that we both have come from our 21st century perspective. We acknowledge that. I acknowledge that. However, I just think that when I read this, my first thought was that just sounds like this guy forced a, guy, a woman to marry her. She did as she asked so he wouldn't probably like kill her and her sisters. She went with him. And then in that one version of the story, as soon as she got the opportunity to leave, she did. But then she got roped back in and it just seemed like this dark allegory for domestic abuse. Ooh. And it, I hated it. Like that was my first instinct. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. When you put it like that. No, no. Yeah. It'd be one thing if, you know, the first version of the story, that doesn't quite ring as true. Like, yeah, it's still iffy. The guy takes her cloak, doesn't give it back. It could be read as flirtatious depending on certain vibes. She's playing hard to get. What do you mean? Playing hard to get, yeah. And then the father gives his blessing. The two live happily ever after. The guy, the hero does some quests. It's whatever. But the second version of that myth, as soon as the wife gets the opportunity to leave, she does, which leads me as a woman to believe <laughs> that like, oh, okay, she with my context and my worldview – she wasn't happy in that marriage. If she was in love, why would she take the cloak and leave? If she was happy, she would want to stay. It doesn't seem like she was happy. And then the whole point of the myth is the hero tracking her down, capturing her again, I guess, and then forcing her into this life that she doesn't want. It's fucked up. <laughs> like, what the fuck? The swan is almost like a, a symbol for freedom because she's using – she's she flies away, you said – so she's using yeah. the form of the swan to flee. That's her true self. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it just made me mad and it made me sad. And nothing about that myth, I couldn't even see a lesson. Because sometimes folklore and myth, it's supposed to teach you a lesson. I couldn't see any lesson in that. I just, pain. <laughs> I was just pain. And this swan maiden myth 
continued on throughout history in many different iterations, many different cultures, put their spin on it. It's also believed to be the basis of Swan Lake and the Swan Princess, 1994. And... This is also where Paul Anderson got that inspiration for his character in his novel, Alianora, that Gary Gygax, in my opinion, probably definitely read. And so when you trace that back, I haven't read Paul Anderson's book, so I don't know how the portrayal of Alianora is. I did read a synopsis and it just seemed like she was the girlfriend, love interest, She was mostly an object from what I understand, but I haven't read the book, so I can't say that definitively. Gary Gygax saw that, and then you could trace that all the way back to this myth. That doesn't give me hope (laughs) for Swan Maze. I'm sorry. I have such low expectations for part three analysis Mm -hmm. because that myth is fucked. And the ties to swans are fucked. And like what the patriarchy, I believe, did to swans and swan mythology is fucked. Yeah. (laughs) Turning this bird, a symbol of freedom and life and death, into a domestic love and purity symbol. And then seeing in this mythology, it was just, it was a lot. It's dark, man. And there are a lot of layers to it that I I definitely don't have time to get into. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I will end on this quote from Edward A. Armstrong, his book that I used for most of the section. And he says, in his professional opinion, the garment stealing of the Swan Maiden myth suggests that this motif was in part contributed in a patriarchal society. It is a man's wish fulfillment story, as Cinderella is a woman's. So because certain versions of the myth have him taking the cloak and hiding it he thinks that that's a purely patriarchal contribution and i could not agree more (laughs) Uh but yeah that is that is my context for this section thank you for coming to my ted talk sorry to be a bummer um (laughs) or make you as angry as i was but that's just how this part of the analysis happened to be so listen context context is uh a hoot and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a hoot and a half. In conclusion, before we go into the juicy meat meat juice of the Swan May analysis, the Swan Maze connected to Swan mythology, which in turn was inspired by Swan symbolism. Swan symbolism and Swan mythology were tainted by the patriarchy, and specifically, Swan Maiden myth is based on male wish fulfillment. Hence, it is my belief, going into part three, that swan maze are based on legends that men use to further their propaganda, even though swans started as these goth AF symbols of life and death. <laughs> Interesting. I hope that I'm proven wrong, but mm. I don't. Well, I guess we will find out very, very soon as we move into part three. Part three. Wow. <laughs> Hello Harlots, Chardet here with an exciting announcement. We have partnered with Game Tea to give you, our amazing listeners, exclusive savings when shopping for your next piece of gaming gear. Game Tea is an artist-owned business specializing in homemade gaming accessories, including clothes, dice, and more. Seriously, their stuff is so freaking cool. I have a flask from them. 
and it was my go-to DMing prop when we played in person. It says Dungeon Master's Homebrew on it. Iconic. If you want to expand your treasure trove of TTRPG goodies and support the podcast by helping us get a little commission, head on over to gametea.co.uk. That's G-A-M-E-T-E-E dot co dot U-K. Use code SLOVENLYTROLLS, all one word, at checkout to receive 5% off your purchase and knock off a chunk of that pesky sales tax. Now let's get back to the show. Part three, Swan May, meat juice. Juice meat? <laughs> that just sounds like we're going to eat a swan. <laughs> I know. I know. That's why I said that. <laughs> yes. So welcome to part three, the analysis, where we will be discussing the lore of Swan Maze by me, Lissa, the not context queen of this episode. The meat queen. <laughs> <laughs> the meat queen. Me, Lisa, the co- meat queen, the queen of meat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While we've called this the Swan May episode, there are actually two different bird ladies that we are going to be discussing in D&D history. Both of which I actually did mention in my overview of lycanthropy. The Swan May, the first one. And the Bird Maiden. And we were initially only going to cover the Swan, Swan May episode, but seeing as um, the context of the Snow Maiden and the story that you just heard in part two mm-hmm. by Sherde, we kind of have to mention the Bird Maiden. And you'll see why when I get to it, because it's very, very relevant. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> would you would you like to form words? I hear groaning, but how how does that make you feel, Shorty? <laughs> I'm scared and nervous. I'm gonna get real angry. I just know it. My expectations, as you know, are low. So <laughs> I wanna see if this will exceed my expectations because they're so low. Mm -hmm. Or if it'll go even lower. I guess we'll just find out because I'm going to spit. I'll begin with, you know, the easy one. So we'll begin with the swan may and then we'll go into the bird maiden. But the swan may. Basics for the swan may. We, I got my basics from Dragon Magazine. It's not really a story time, but it it kind of is a a, a short TLDR story time. So swan may in their lore, are what they call maidens of pure heart. We've heard that before, and we'll probably hear it again. Uh, yep. This is just a D&D thing. So they are maidens of pure heart who made their way into the court of the fairy queen, and they wanted to please the fairy queen with a story or song in order to remain in the realm for longer. However, the realm is closed to mortals except for like short visits. Essentially, you need a visa in order to go to the fairy realm. And (laughs) even when you have someone like the fairy queen, she doesn't have the power to grant you access to the fairy realm unless it's just for a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So these women, maidens of pure heart, came to the fairy realm. They sang a beautiful song. They told a very heart-wrenching story 
The queen loved it. She granted them access to visit them, and she gave them an item, a token of her appreciation, a feather, a magical feather, that allows them to turn into beautiful swans. And if they accept this token of her appreciation, they become protectors of the fairy realm and of nature in and of itself. Oh, where have I heard that before? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Not and dryads or nymphs or unicorns or... <laughs> name any nature animal in nature ever. Well, all, well, also just the feminine ones. Well, yes, specifically the feminine ones. The ones, ones we've talked yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always the guardian. I've never heard of a masculine guardian of nature unless we're talking about Sylvanas, the... nature daddy the tree god every other time it's always been like a feminine and aligned yeah creature a lot of the times it has been yeah and it is said that once in a new moon they can maybe enter the realm of the fairy for a short amount of time so it's essentially a free pass for a short time Mm -hmm. into the fairy realm so that's it lore story time over what we can see is that Swan maze are essentially human females that have the magical power to change into beautiful swans. Not just any kind of swan, not an ugly swan, not a, an ugly duckling, a beautiful swan, mind you. Naturally. And in their human form, they are indistinguishable from other people, and they look like regular rangers or druids, because that's essentially what classes they're linked to. It's they're either rangers or later on druids. In their swan form, they're indistinguishable from other swans, other than they might have a little twinkle twinkle in their eye because they are, would you say, a little bit smarter or more wise than regular animals. So, you know, Mm -hmm. they have a little something special to them. Can I ask a clarification question? Mm -hmm. Uh, When you say human female, do you just mean like actual like the human species slash race like you can't be an elf swan maiden you can't be a tiefling swan maiden you can't be a dragonborn swan maiden like it has to be human or was it just a little bit vague it was a little bit vague so i think in dragon magazine it was human female or Mm -hmm. elven female specifically or in 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 a couple of the lore it was human or elven female specifically okay but yeah humanoid female gotcha 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 Mm -hmm. i just wanted to make sure yeah Their power comes from this item that they've gotten. Other than like in Dragon Magazine where it talks about the lore, it's not really said where you get this item from, but it's you have this item, which usually takes the form of a feather token, feathered garment, as we've heard, or a signet ring. And when these women change into their swan form, essentially the item that grants them the power becomes part of the swan. So if it's a feathered token, it becomes part of its wing. If it's a feathered garment, it turns into the wings or a part of the swan. If it's a signet ring, the swan might have a ring around one of its ankles. I I don't think swans have ankles, but you know, the foot. So it essentially becomes a part of the swan. And a fun fact based on AD&D is it says that no male is known to have ever possessed and successfully used a captured item of this sort. So essentially, even if a male humanoid or being possessed and stole the item from a swan may mm-hmm. or took one, they can't use it. 
which is yeah it's it's like the item has to be used by the swan may and can only be used by the swan may maybe i mean that makes sense yeah because it seems like swan mays are just human women so like why would a man be able to use it it just seems gender locked like they're just like don't worry like men can't turn into swans Mm -hmm. i'm actually i don't I guess I don't mind that as much because they could have been worse with it and they could have been like if a man does use it, they are cursed to be a swan for eternity because what's worse, you know, Mm. than being a feminine aligned creature, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which it just depends, I guess, on the tone that they used with it. So not surprising if they want to keep it gender locked and it just see it goes along with the myth too, right? Mm. The swan maiden mythology has... The swan maidens have a cloak mm-hmm. of specifically feathers. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like, yeah, that's that's just directly lifted. It's interesting, though, that they don't say that it can't be used by another female or feminine figure. Is that assuming that there are no feminine figures or that feminine figures would not steal a swan maze token? Um, I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Or it's just like, hey, if you happen to be a feminine humanoid and you want to use the swan maiden cloak, go ahead, try it. Does it say what would happen or did it just conveniently omit what would happen because they didn't think of that possibility? They did They did not consider the possibility at all whatsoever. <laughs> <sighs> I was about to give them some good benefit of the doubt, but they just lost it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But as with the context that you talked about, without the item, the swan remains in her current form. And it is said that the items only function for the swan maze. Okay. Whether or not that's like the feminine or mm-hmm. is if, if it's whether or not it's like gender based or. Sure. Yeah. Or not is a bit iffy. Yeah. It is vague on how swan maze are created. Uh-huh. It is. Are they created? It's so strange. Sometimes early D&D is very in-depth with mating habits mm-hmm. and stuff. So I'm surprised they're not saying like, oh, you can only be born a swan may or you can only be blessed to be a swan may. Like, how are swan mays created? That's missing out of their story time. Do they just exist? Like, how do they, how does a female human know that she's not a swan may? It's. There's a lot of there's a lot of plot holes in this. I'm already seeing early on. <laughs> you can become a swan man. I'll get to that later on. But like, how did the original swan maze become swan maze? It's assumed that we use the dragon magazine lore, where it's the fairy realm gave this token. But where do the tokens come from? Do they make these objects? It's like it's it's very left up to interpretation. I guess you could say. Yeah. And if it's a token, that means that Swan May is not something you're born with. It's something you become. Yeah. So I'm very confused as to why they say items can only function for Swan Mays mm-hmm. because it seems like you can only become a Swan May if you have the token. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. does that mean every – is there is there like a weird reading where you could be like every woman's a Swan May if you really <laughs> want <laughs> – if you can be? I, I don't – it's just so conv- – they obviously didn't think too far depth in this. I'm giving like maybe it's not fair to critique it that much because obviously they didn't think that far into it. But I'm offended that they didn't because mm-hmm. they've gone in depth with a lot of other like in our Dark Sun episode, there is that matriarchal society of women and they went very in depth into how they reproduce. 
Yeah. But not with swan maze. So why are they picking and choosing? Is it because they're a symbol of purity? I don't know. I have a lot of questions, but I feel like we're lingering on this too long because <laughs> I'm just confused. So keep keep going. <laughs> Keeping going. So it is said, though, that if the item or the token is destroyed, there is a quote-unquote special quest that the swan may can go in order to replace it. What that quest is, we have no idea. No idea. This is from 2E. And it doesn't go into any further detail than that. It's just you go on a special quest. The DM can maybe decide on what that quest is and what needs to be done. But you you can just replace it. It's a special mm-hmm. quest. I don't know if it's difficult. I don't know if it's easy. But yeah. Um, so swan maze do have a habitat that they usually live in. And in AD&D, they are specifically found in tables. As with all AD- AD&D things, you know, you use tables for everything. Where you can find them are temperate wetlands, so freshwater areas, wilderness, forests, and they are a very rare encounter that you can find. Some other very rare encounters that you can find that we know are green hags, nymphs, dryads, pegasi, and unicorns. Fun fact. Oh. And by very rare, I mean there's only a 30% chance that you can actually run into one of these things or any of those things that I just listed, Mm -hmm. which I thought was just interesting. They do speak a couple different languages. They speak Sylvan Elvish, they speak Dryadic, and they speak Common. And Swan Maze, I should mention, are only in AD&D, 2E, and in 3.5. So they don't appear in 4E or 5E, which is why it's a bit weird when I go into like some of the details in these Swan May and the Bird Maidens. Right. And we can't really trace if they ever improved all that much. Yeah. <laughs> Except maybe with 3.5, I guess. But after that, they seem to have dropped them. Yeah. They are omnivores. I know you were probably wondering with the meat juice and the juice meat, you know, are we (laughs) eating swans? No, we're not eating swans. They're omnivores. (laughs) So they go into depth with what they eat, but not how you make swan maize? Come on. Yeah, you know, you pick and choose the important things. Obviously. And for their personalities, I've kind of grouped them into three points, you could say, for their personality. The first one, a big one, which goes along with what they are, they are nature and wildlife protectors. So like every other nature deity and being, they basically just protect nature, stand nature, stand wildlife, protect it, you know, yay, don't Mm. kill animals, don't kill trees, that Mm -hmm. vibe. Friendly with other woodland creatures like sylvan elves, dryads, nymphs, unicorns. Etc. And they shun humanity and civilization because, as we know in AD&D, it's nature beings and into E, I should say. Uh, nature beings are one of two. You are pro-civilization and cities, or you are pro-nature and wilderness. There is no in-between. Yeah, there's no in-between. You're either one or the other. Mm-hmm. So that's the first one. That's the first personality trait they are. The second one I have listed as meek women stereotype. Lovely. (laughs) So they are a goody two-shoes kind of gal. They are very much leaning towards the good aligned, usually. And of course, being good aligned, they absolutely hate anything that is evil. 
This is according to AD&D and 2E. They dislike noisy, brash creatures, and they dislike ferocious beasts. Now, they usually hate people, or by people, I, I guess I mean adventurers and humanoids. But if you are a good aligned person, adventurer, humanoid, and you've proven yourself like good, they might help them. And they might even get you to help them to save the forest from beasts or destruction or something. So they hate humanity and they don't like it unless it's plot relevant. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Yep. They are also immensely superstitious. So they see signs and omens in nature. It doesn't say anything else except that. But mm -hmm. I, I guess that's, yeah, a thing. And they live in flocks. But interestingly enough, swan maze protects swans more out of sympathy for their similarity than out of any kinship that they would feel towards swans, even though they literally turn into swans. And that's like a detail directly lifted from one of their descriptions. That yes, that's that's I, I quote a verbatim wrote those words from AD&D, that they protect swans more out of sympathy for their similarity than out of any kinship. They do not Weird. feel kinship as swan maze towards swans, but they feel sympathetic because they are similar. <laughs> Such a, again, they're hey, getting hung up on the wrong kind of details that I want. <laughs> like, I don't care about, like, that just, that's a weird detail. I still just want to know how they're made. <laughs> I want to know where all the plot holes are, but nope. I am just, I'm very confused <laughs> by, th by them already. I'm not angry though, so that's a good sign. I'm just confused as to what details they're honing in on. I just, yeah, it's very weird, the things, the details that they add to Swan Maze. And it, it like, yeah, and they don't explain any of them is what I find more frustrating. Not. It's like, I, I don't understand the logic, where the logic comes from. Sometimes we can trace the logic in some of the, mm -hmm. the ways that they talk about things. Even when I hate how in detail they go sometimes with like feminine aligned creatures or like matriarchies and what their breeding habits are, I usually it gives me the ick. But I can at least trace the logic into, oh, I guess they're in the monster manual. There might just be that one player who asks or... If you want to treat it like a bestiary, sometimes bestiaries do go into that kind of analytical, logical data in order to really give an overview of what the creature is. So I can at least still trace it, even though I think it's kind of weird. I can at least be like, okay, I can see where maybe their logic came from. But yeah, mm -hmm. these details are just a little bit off and confusing. And I wonder if there's a reason for that. But I, if there is... I have not thought of it yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't figure it out at all, which is why I'm just, I, my literal notes just have a bunch of question marks on it. Like, I, <laughs> huh? <laughs> what, what, why? They wanted to include swan maze and swan maidens, but they didn't know how, which is strange because mm. like you would think they would just lean into all of the patriarchal sexist nonsense which I'm sure they will eventually. You're not done talking about them yet, but... I mean, they're they're good-aligned creatures, which I would think, yes, they're empathetic towards swans, but not because they're swans. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but moving on. Yeah. Third personality trait that I've listed under them, and this one, 
I feel like I'm calling out myself and my people for this, but um, I've called it they are the Finnish stereotype. <laughs> Lovely. Mm-hmm. So let me let me let me explain what that means. I'm I'm quoting A D and D for a lot of these. They are principally attuned to solitude, nature, and the company of their adopted kind. They build communal lodgings near bodies of water deep in the forest. That's just you're just talking about Finnish people, really. <laughs> so some details more on the lodgings of the swan maze, and not specifically about this Finnish stereotype is that these lodgings are actually said to be fortified against land attacks, which is a very weird but checks out kind of thing from AD&D. Sure, war game vibe, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, because obviously you would want to attack the Swan May lodgings as adventurers. Mm. That makes total sense to oh, me. Oh, yeah. Also that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they actually keep remains of poachers outside of their lodgings as a warning sign to others not to enter. Well, that's badass. I will give them that. I like that. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. Like it's it's badass but also kind of out of their per out of their goody two shoes personality. <laughs> it does cuz it kind of it it links to like this ferocity and this yeah, just general fero ferocity, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, up until this point, like you said, they're meek. They're mm -hmm. way more of a meek stereotype. Mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting if they're like, oh, they can be meek, but also, you know, if the right buttons are pushed, they can attack you. But they aren't really explaining that super well. They are technically showing it through details, but mm -hmm. because this one detail just seems so far out of the lore that they've already established, it's not quite done as well as it could be. Mm -hmm. Even though I like it. I like that detail and I wish they had more of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fun fact about them is that they abhor subterranean places, so they don't go underground, and they hate being underground, and they also hate enclosed places above ground, which I think is just something to say about them being swans and yeah. this whole using their swan form to flee and how would you be able to flee if you're stuck in an enclosed place they don't want to be captured mm -hmm. they are also very secretive and distrusting and rarely if ever do they reveal their true natures even to close companions which again they're just finnish people really like i don't i don't know how to tell you <laughs> they're just Finnish people, they live alone up near bodies of water and they don't like talking to people and they just want to do their own thing and live in nature. Like, I, they, they're, just, they're just Finnish people. <laughs> it just sounds like there's a reason why the, the, that specific breed of swan is the Finnish symbol, like the Finnish animal. <laughs> it seems like the logic is kind of... It's not far-fetched to think that, hey, maybe, because we know Gary Gygax has used Finnish <laughs> mythology before, maybe, just maybe, this is on purpose. <gasps> it's on purpose. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Yeah, so Swan Maze, when they get together, you know how a flock of ravens is called a murder or whatever? Do you want to yeah. guess? Do you want to take a stab at what you would call a flock of swan maze. I would just call them a flock, but I have a feeling that's not correct. <laughs> so they are what you call a sorority. 
Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Specifically, a secret sorority. Mm -hmm. And this goes into, like, how you join the sorority. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Members of a special sorority of lycanthrope rangers in AD&D and then druids in 2E, or rangers and druids in 2E, which only human women are admitted, according to AD&D, and they are invited to join when they unknowingly perform a great service for another swan may. So only human women are admitted, and they are invited to join if they accidentally or unknowingly perform a great service for another swan may. When they join, though, there is a 50% chance that the swan may will retire from what they call casual adventuring to devote herself full-time to her new responsibilities. And I just, I, can you, what... When I say that, like specifically about the 50% likely that she will retire from casual adventuring, what does that make you feel? Like what, what does that sound like to you? I'm just, no, I, well, I'm thinking um, from a DM perspective, does that mean you make them roll for it and it's not their choice? Because I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, it, it really doesn't say, but they do give that statistic of it is 50% likely that she will retire from casual adventuring to devote herself to her quote-unquote new responsibilities. That is, yeah, I mean, that's not the only time we've seen something like that. Like when somebody interacts with a group of mostly feminine-aligned people, which is usually, in this case, women. We saw that as well with nymphs. If a male adventurer was kind of put under her spell, mm -hmm. there was a certain percentage likelihood that he would never come back and they would essentially just kidnap him from eternity and you would never see from that adventurer again. So I've seen stuff like this before. I just, because they specifically tie it to adventuring, I'm just a big advocate for having autonomy with your players and making sure they're on board to roll with anything. Mm -hmm. So that's where my mind kind of goes a little bit. But yeah, I don't I don't really know if I like that. <laughs> I don't really know because like when I thought about it, I thought, okay, if you're going from adventuring and you're joining a sorority, right. is that you just becoming a homely housewife with <sighs> other women? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You could think of it that way too. I, for I sure. mean, I mean, okay. The the sorority supposedly protects the forest and attacks beings that are destroying the forest, but also they're just hanging out in lodgings and yeah, doing things in the forest. Adventuring is adventuring. It's what out of like a stereotype. It's what the men would do. Right. I I don't see a D and D making a male equivalent mm. of a group and then just i don't think of this yeah think if this was called secret fraternity would this have the same statistic 
I don't know if that would. Because also when you – I understand that sorority is a term and I think technically defined it is a catch-all term for like a large group of women or a group of women. You can call mm-hmm. that a sorority and be correct. Like mm-hmm. I understand the definition of that. However, with the rhetorical baggage, especially when you are thinking from an American perspective, which D&D was written originally in – the United States, sororities and fraternities and frat life and Greek life, that is a whole thing in the States. It's very unique to the States. It brings about certain imagery of, you know, a certain type of person and a certain type of social group. And I won't go, you know, super in-depth into that, but I think it's worth noting that calling a group of women a sorority also will 100% harken back to a sorority in the Greek life aspect, whereas fraternity, it can also mean that, but I've seen fraternity used a lot more, we'll say, as a far-reaching term because obviously men have more opportunities and we can get into the rhetoric of like, why is this term used more than the feminine ascribed term? But I can go on a whole tangent. I So I, I just, to kind of close off this, because I know you have a lot more to get through, mm-hmm. I think it's just worth noting that, yeah. This it brings a lot of baggage with it. I don't know if a D and D would ever do a masculine fraternal equivalent. If if we find one, we will eat our words and we will a hundred percent say, "Listen, we were wrong." But I have yeah. just a feeling. <laughs> I think we both do. Yeah, it, it was just this feeling that I got when I read that, and I'm like, "That's suspicious. <laughs> That's weird. That's weird. That's suspicious." All of the above information that I so. That I've so far talked about in this section has been from AD&D and 2E. So getting into 3.5, you only really see Swan Maze in one form, and they are that in a prestige class. Oh shit! Yeah, they are a prestige class in the Book of Exalted Deeds. And I don't really have time to list everything about the prestige class, but I've condensed it into the highlights of what I think are important things to mention from 3.5E. Instead of a sorority, as they were in AD&D and 2E, they are called a secretive order sworn to protect wilderness areas from evil. We see the improvement there. Yeah. Yeah. We can. We can trace that. Yeah. Yeah. Credit. Credit where credit is due. Yep. Like that a lot better. Yeah. They are specifically said to be a prestige class that features their ability to adopt the form of a swan. And they do mention that they use it primarily for mobility which is something that goes mm-hmm. along with what you talked about in part two, which was that oh, she yeah. would use her swan form to fly away. And they took that mm-hmm. primarily used for mobility. And I like the fact that they're giving this detail because in AD&D and 2E, they didn't really list how they used the swan form. I wonder if as well, I don't know if you could play a swan may in AD&D and 2E so it they probably had to if they made it a player option specifically because from what you've talked about in AD&D and 2E with Swan Maze so far it just seems like yeah they are a female only thing but they never really accounted for well what if a female player wanted to become one it doesn't sound like you found any stats for that it doesn't sound like they have a class ability for that I don't think you are allowed to play a Swan Maze because they are found they are found in the monster manual 
in AD and Yeah, so they didn't even account for, even in their own lore, saying only swan maize can use cloaks, but swan maize can be really any woman if they find a cloak. But they, like the logic is obviously all over the place. So it seems like they wanted to make it a player option, which is great. And they kind of had to lean into that, thankfully. I think that was a good, smart move. And maybe if Swan May was an option for women early on, maybe we wouldn't have a lot of this confusion Mm. (laughs) surrounding them because they weren't thinking that women would want to play them and be like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. Like it's only women. Like I could be part of the sorority. Like that can appeal to Uh, Any type of player who wants to do that should feel welcome to do that. Mm -hmm. But obviously, I think we can safely say they weren't there for that. They were there to um, for the male players to look at and maybe interact with. Yeah. Yeah. Encounter, interact with, deal with. This is all conjecture. We don't know anybody who's ever interacted with them, but that's the vibe they've been giving me so far. And this seems, 3.5 seems like they are giving them more autonomy and giving them more of a purpose, which thank fucking God for that. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are certain requirements as per with prestige classes. There are specific requirements that you need to fulfill in order to pick that prestige class and use it on your character. The first requirement is that you do have to be a female character. And you do have to be a good aligned female character in order to become a Swanmei. You do have to have high nature skills. You have to do, or you do have to speak Sylvan. And you do have to have high survival as well. Makes sense. And you do have to have a feat in order to join the Swanmei prestige class. And I want to get your reaction of this because the feat that you need to have is called the vow of purity. It's called the what? The vow of purity. You have to be pure. Pure in what? Pure in what? (laughs) In mind and heart and body? Like, what do they mean? (laughs) What do they mean? Made in a pure heart, uh, obviously. Um, No. So it's not as bad as you think. But the... (sighs) I hate it even more then. So why would you use that term if it's not that bad? Okay, so you have taken a sacred vow. And this is, I'm reading this. You have taken a sacred vow to avoid contact with dead flesh is your vow of purity. What? That is an awful name for the, sorry, 3.5. I was just giving you a lot of credit. Bad. No, bad. (laughs) I hate that. I hate that. I hate that it's called that. The feet, I'm sure it's great. But don't call it that. Are you serious? Like, there's a whole history of people of certain religions taking vows of purity, like vows of chastity. It's a huge motif in a mm-hmm. lot of medieval fantasy. Like, I think of the Robin Hood men in tights and the chastity belt. Like, there's a whole baggage with that. Are you... Ugh. Okay, continue. Sorry. <laughs> As a bonus, you get a plus four perfection bonus on fortitude saving throws against resisting disease and death effects. All in all, it's, it's, it sounds like a good thing. Yeah, that sounds fine. Zombie repellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So resisting disease, resisting death effects. In order to fulfill your vow, however, you cannot touch dead creatures at all, including cooked meat or food. You cannot touch dead enemies. You can fight them, but not, or no, you can fight them, but then you need to 
what they call purify yourself afterwards. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you accidentally touch them, the dead or the undead, because undead count as dead as well, um, you have to take Uh one hour of your time and use holy water in order to purify yourself. That's what purifying yourself means. Sure. And you can only touch dead people to bring them back to life If you intentionally break the vow, you lose the feet forever with no possibility to replace it. And if you are forced to, like through mind control or something, touch dead things, you basically have to become Catholic and atone for your sins. (laughs) All right. It does sound like an interesting feat. Like I'm not saying it's not, but it is very – also, I just think it's really confusing for swan maidens because while – Swan mythology definitely has ties to life and death. So I kind of like that connection in that sense. And if you are a uh, champion for life and death, you would, of course, hate undeath. So Mm -hmm. that does make sense. But it also seems like, again, they're contradicting their own lore because weren't swan maids supposed to be omnivores and now they have to be vegetarians? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Wow. Look at that meat. Look at that meat lore coming back. Look at that meat juice lore coming back. You didn't think it was relevant when, when Lissa first said it. You're wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. You're so wrong. It's It sounds like a fine feat. It does make the swan maze a little bit more inconsistent, though, and a little bit more of a holy creature, it seems like, or a holy prestige it's, class. It's, it's the goody, it's, it's goody two-shoes. It's the okay. goody two-shoes. And the only benefit of the doubt that I could possibly give it is because – Swan maids are maidens of pure heart. They're trying to define what pure heart means. And it's the vow of purity. It means you become the goody two shoes exponentially, you know, improved so that you have like nothing dead or undead to do with you. Because why would you as a nature being want to be have anything to do with death? Yeah, I can. They're trying to give it mechanics. Mm-hmm. They're doing the D&D. They're gamifying it. So mm-hmm. like you, I can. Yeah, I can trace that line of logic as well. I don't think it's consistent with their own lore. And I don't think it's maybe the best way to represent that. Mm-hmm. But at least you can say, OK, I can kind of see where they got that from. I still think it's an awful name for a feat. Mm-hmm. And I will die on that hill. But yeah. Okay, so the last final requirements that I'll kind of gloss over is you need to be able to speak cast, or you need to be able to cast speak with animals. So obviously you need to be able to talk to animals in order to become a swan. May, swan may, and a swan through being a swan may. And you have to have what's called a wild empathy class feature. So essentially you have an easier time to empathize with wild beings. And that's it. They are goody two-shoes women. It's all about nature and women, women and nature, who are committed to the cause of good, uh, live in communal lodges, secluded in deep forests, travel only to fight evil in a super secret club where the first rule of Swan Club is don't talk about Swan Club. That's Mm. the Swan May for you. So now that we've done the Swan May, let me quickly go through the Bird Maiden because, again, this is... The more, let's say, interesting and problematic one. This one? The other one was due. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But this one, so to warn you, this one is based on a magic class that comes from the Al-Kadim, the Arabian Adventure source book, which is a racist piece of shit source book. I'm sorry, <laughs> this is my personal <laughs> opinion. 
And if you would like to find out more information about that, I highly suggest the Asians Represent podcast who have gone through and done a read-through of the Al-Qadim Arabian Adventure sourcebook. They have a whole YouTube read-through and they have an episode, I think it's episode 21 of the Asians Represent podcast. They have like an overarching reflection on both the Al-Qadim and Oriental adventures together. If you want more information about Al-Qadim, the Arabian adventures, look there and they will tell you all about it. But let's discuss bird maidens. Bird maidens are said to be related to swan maize and they call the swan maize their sisters. The basics that you need to know about bird maidens is that they are specific magic casters which are based on these magic casters from the Al-Qadim source book. They're basically called Kahina, and they are a female form of this magic caster, which male form is called the Kahin. So they're essentially druid-like clerics. And by that, I mean that they believe that divinity is in all things around them in nature. So they are clerics, but they receive their magic from nature which is an interesting take and of yeah. the land itself so you're talking desert you're taking talking nature the sea the wasteland they're very anti-capitalist anti-civilization cleric magic caster and the bird maidens specifically are able to change forms using a token again in this case a colorful shawl or a veil of feathers and again, they can't change forms without the token. So you already know what a swan mate is. So what a bird maiden does differently, instead of being a swan that they change into, they can change into any different bird shapes. So we're talking falcons, we're talking swallows, parrots, and at higher levels, even something like a giant eagle. And it's specifically mentioned that they don't usually fight as birds. So again, it's mostly just used for mobility. While swan maids are usually good aligned, bird maidens are usually neutral aligned. So 80% of them are actually said to be neutral aligned beings. And I, I, I wrote down like my personal thoughts on why they are neutral aligned is that when we did our nature episodes, we found that a lot of nature-based deities and beings that are very pro-nature, they are neutral because they don't, they're not good because good would imply that you see the good in like humans, you would see the good in other people. But nature is very in and of itself, just protecting itself against harm. So very neutral based on like, you're not taking any sides, I guess is where I'm going with this. Yeah. The rest of the, because it was 80% neutral aligned, the rest of them, it's 10% good aligned. But even when, even when they are good aligned, they're more neutral good. And the other 10% is they are evil aligned, but even so, they are more neutral evil. And these evil aligned creatures are even rumored to be able to change into things like ravens and bloodhawks and giant vultures. Huh. Ravens aren't evil. What? Yeah. That's rude. <laughs> and also differently from swan maids, these bird maidens are not a sorority. They are only loosely united by faith. But similar to swan maids, bird maidens are 
wandering teachers and protectors of the land. And <laughs> my favorite my favorite line from my research is probably they preach the faith and maintain the fertility of the land and livestock, which is the rhetoric that they mm. use to describe the sure. bird maidens. And all I wrote down is that this is this has mommy Shantaea written all over oh, yeah. all over it. It's 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 all about teaching irrigation to farmers to help their crops grow, but like in a nature friendly way. And in doing so, that's that's all that Shantaea is doing, except that Shantaea was hated because she helped human beings and humanoids, I guess. And I, I guess there's something to be said as well. Obviously, plant fertility is different than humanoid fertility, but I think there's something to be said, and we've said it before, so we don't have to go into detail about it, about how it's usually women that are in charge of fertility and fertility rituals and fertility goddesses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's something to be said of that connection to women and nature and the fact that those roles are almost exclusively feminine. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this is a detail in there is not... Not even a little bit surprising. We've seen it in, yeah, the two deep dives we've already done into nature and women as well. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's par for the course. Mm -hmm. It is. And it's, it's not only the fertility of the land, but it's fertility of livestock as well. Yeah. Also, you know, like if they have cows or chickens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then this is the last part that I'm going to talk about, but... um. I've called this part the interesting things about the bird maidens. And interesting or interesting? Interesting. Fuck. All right. <laughs> if you if you had issues with any of the content warnings, this is where um this is the part you skip because okay. this is the the shady shit. Let's get into it. They are believed to be what I guess the source book calls Hama, essentially which are spirits of the departed returned to help the living. Hmm. And that just reminds me of banshees because yeah. isn't that all that banshees are? Is 100% spirits of the departed returned to warn their families well, of the living. They're supposed to be, however, yeah. <laughs> they're not in D&D. &D. <laughs> And these bird maidens do not like being called Hama. And what they do to prove that they are not Hama is that they may cut themselves because that proves that they are flesh and blood. There are other ways to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. I get what they're trying to say. I get that they're trying to say bird maidens don't like being called that. They want to prove their flesh and blood. Say that. Don't give a graphic example of mm -hmm. that because of obvious, I believe, self-harm kind yeah. of rhetoric reasons. Mm -hmm. I I'm not saying it's a bad detail for them to have. They really don't like being called this. They will do whatever it takes to prove that they are flesh and blood and then leave it up to the player or the DM to decide what that means. Mm -hmm. Don't use a detail like that specifically mm -hmm. because then that's going to become the norm mm -hmm. for – Let's say somebody plays a bird maiden or the DM portrays a bird maiden in their campaign. Mm -hmm. And that's if that's the default, that you're just going to have a lot of people describing that happening and it might trigger somebody or it's it's not not good. That's not good. No. No. No, thank you. Bird maidens are from 2E specifically. And 
I don't think mental health was a thing. No. I mean, it was, but definitely was not part of the conversation. It wasn't in the general sphere. It was more, um, I don't want to say demonized, but that's the word I can think of right now. It Mm -hmm. wasn't taken as seriously as thankfully it's being taken now. So Mm -hmm. you can see why they maybe didn't cut that out. They obviously didn't have sensitivity readers back then, but yeah, yeah, I I don't like that. No, no, it's not. This is why this is the interesting in big quotes part. Yeah, yeah. So they actually, instead of having verbal components in their spells and as speaking those, they are actually said to sing the verbal components of their spells in what they call a sweet, warbling voice, according to Dragon Magazine. I like that a lot, but also that's because I'm a bard main, so that's usually how I portray bards, is you don't say your spells, you sing them. I I like that. I I do like that, but I'm just just questioning whether, again, this is an all-female, I was going to say class, but all-female being... And you know that if it was an all-male being, they wouldn't be singing it. I, I understand that the singing is in reference to birds sing. Birds. Therefore, yeah. they are singing. But again, it's it's the femininity that's suspicious yeah. in there. It's the stereotyping that's suspicious to me. Because ma- male birds sing too, but you know if bird if these were not bird maidens, these were like just bird people or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't be described like in a sweet warbling voice. They would just probably say something like they sing a melody or uh-huh. whatever, something way more neutral that's not gendered, but the fact they lean into it more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it yeah. That tracks. And then we come to the reason why we had to talk about bird maidens. It is specifically said that bird maidens are sometimes forced to marry men who steal their shawls and if they ever rec- if they ever recover them they leave their husbands killing their sons and taking their daughters with them to become bird maidens um what <laughs> i just i don't this is 2e not only are they forced to marry men who steal their shawls if they ever recover their shawls they leave their husbands, kill their sons, and take their daughters with them to become bird maidens. Like, they don't give you any reasons or details as to why this detail is put in there. It makes it sound like they're man-hating. It makes them sound like they hate men. I understand killing their husband for making them marry them. Like, that's not a man-hating thing to do. That's the, that's your partner did something shitty and you are reacting in a way that's murderous, which is not great. We frown upon murder. Mm-hmm. We don't like murder. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can still see the logic. But the fact that the detail is that they're also killing their sons, that's what I have a problem with. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? And I don't. I didn't have time to get into bird maiden mythology throughout culture, so I don't know if this actually has links to anything, like any other cultures, like maybe the bird maiden or the, um, sorry, the, the swan maiden mythology mm-hmm. and retellings of it does have the swan maiden come back and kill their husband and kill their sons. Maybe they got that from somewhere. But even if they did, I hate that too. I hate when D&D leans into the man-hatingness of these matriarchal because this we gotta say it's a matriarchal society or it's supposed to be because it's all women i mean what else could it possibly be but i'm sure it's not a real matriarchy 
because it never is with D&D. Why, I hate that they always lean into the man-hatingness of it because it's not what a fucking matriarchy is. It's not what a group of women is. Mm-hmm. Just because they're in a sorority doesn't mean they hate men. Just because it's a group of hags doesn't mean they hate men. It just means that there's just a bunch of women hanging out with each other, probably doing hot goss and braiding each other's hair mm-hmm. and complaining about things, but not hating men. It just seems like a feminist bad stereotype because it's a group of women. Obviously, they hate men. They have to kill their sons. That's stupid, and I hate that. <laughs> but you know what makes it even worse? Mm, what? The Bird Maiden is based on the Al-Qadim Arabian-based magic caster class. Right. Essentially, it's tied It's tied to a, a group of people in the real mm. world. And what does that mm-hmm. say about that group of people in the real world? It, what yeah. what stereotypes that, that does that paint on? Like, I... I I just, when I read that, like, I saw fury. I saw red. I'm, this is why I don't want to touch, I don't want to touch that book. I can't deal with these books and the way that they paint people when you look at it in the context of who they are trying to portray and the problems that they place on them. Yeah, because they never, they never do it with nuance. They, they paint over everything with one color on one brush. Mm-hmm. They they do not add nuance to it, especially early in D&D. And that's really like, it's fucked up. It's just fucked up. I, I couldn't speak on the nuances of it if this does come from somewhere, but the fact that it has any ties at all to real life people mm-hmm. and real life cultures just adds a whole other layer of fucked up. Mm-hmm. I have one final point. Which is also from 2E. So if the feathered garment is destroyed, the bird maiden dies as well. What? I'm just going to add one more thing, which came from Dragon Magazine. Uh There is no hope whatsoever of resurrection. What the fuck? I I wish, God, I wish I had time for swan maiden mythology to like. I don't know where this is coming from. I I do not understand. No. Based on the context that you gave of swan maze, and swan maidens, or yeah, based on, on swan maze and looking at the swan maiden context, okay, it's a dramatic reading of swan maze, but the fact that it's tied to the Al-Qadim source book and yeah. the way that it portrays just women, I do not understand. I don't, I'm so mad. Yeah, I don't know where they're getting this because when I looked at it, I didn't have enough time to look into swan maidens throughout every single culture. So who knows? There could be a version of this out there somewhere where this is exactly how one of the swan maiden supernatural wife stories ends. If And it says, hey, the swan maiden's cloak was destroyed and she died. And gamifying that, no hope forever for resurrection or whatever. It could very easily have ties somewhere. Mm-hmm. Either way, if you're getting it from somewhere – that's fucked up. If you're making it up, that's fucked up. That's even more fucked up. Either way, it's fucked up mm-hmm. on either level. It's not a good – no, it's not a good thing because this – the Swan Maiden mythology has links to like, I, in my opinion, domestic violence yeah. and the loss of women's autonomy over their fucking lives mm-hmm. and the fact that somebody could just steal their cloak and kill them – and also basically just use this one token that's a part of them to control them. It's just, I hate that. 
on so many levels. It it do, it doesn't even make sense based on their alignment. Like, okay, they can be ten percent evil aligned. But Be- benefit of the That's doubt. That's so true. Ten percent, they can be evil aligned. But even so, they're neutral evil. Yeah, and neutral good people wouldn't do this. Neutral e neutral people. I feel like that's just evil. That's not a neutral thing to do. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's just my interpretation. That's not a neutral thing for me to do. Even no. even if we do look at like okay, the game, the gamification and like how I would justify my bird maiden or the bird maiden doing like it it doesn't make sense mechanically it doesn't make sense based on the context that we have obviously we could be missing something and if you do know more about this and you have found something or heard of something do let us know but it just it does fundamentally it doesn't make sense to me which makes me so mad and it and it lends to the same patterns we've been seeing. Yeah. So even if you take it, if you, if you put it in within the context of all of the D&D lore that we've looked at, it fits that same pattern. Mm-hmm. And thanks, I hate it. But anyway, we're out of time. So we <laughs> we should probably, uh, we and I also just think we're out of time. And also we need to, I think we need to collect our thoughts because my mind is racing at a thousand miles an hour. So mm-hmm. if I, before I can say anything else coherent, I think we're going to take a couple minute break off the air, collect our thoughts, and then we'll be back at you in a couple of seconds with our concluding thoughts. <laughs> And we're back in the conclusion. We've taken some time to treat our triggered selves to some (laughs) words, made sense of our feelings, consulted our inner beings, used our brains to form words, prayed to our goddesses, and now we're ready to tell you exactly what we think about all of what we just verbally told you during the however long we were ranting on this episode. (laughs) Somewhere between two hours and three hours, presumably. Don't manifest three hours in this chat. I will strangle you. (laughs) (laughs) I will go first and I will tell you my thoughts. Going into this episode, I did not think that I would get this mad on this particular episode. I didn't think that Swan Maze had it in them to piss me off the amount that they successfully did. There have been episodes where I knew I would get mad, and there have been episodes that have surprised me in how mad they were able to make me, but this one somehow did it in a way that I didn't see coming. Swan Maze, in my initial research, were tame compared to some of the other stuff that we've looked at on this podcast previously. I thought this was all about the Swan Maiden story. It's the lovey-dovey stuff. It's the Swan Princess movie. It's, you know, she turns into a swan, she flees. It's basic patriarchy bullshit. But what I didn't see coming was the Bird Maiden. And oh boy, what a can of worms I opened up and that should be dead and buried in the fucking ground so deep that no person can ever find that bullshit. Okay. My takeaways. There is an inherent patriarchy problem in 
nature, D&D nature and nature deities. And it carried into Swan Maze and their sisterhood. It's weird that in most cultures, nature is a woman. And even in D&D, nature is intrinsically tied to women and femininity specifically. But, you know, that's just an in-real-life thing. The Swan Maiden is a story of patriarchal oppression of femininity and how femininity uses this bird allegory to flee this oppression. But even so, the ability to flee is used against femininity. It is taken away. It is restricted. It is the object of transformation is literally taken away from femininity and it's used to control them. So even when femininity is trying to get away from the oppression, it's again oppressed. There's nothing more poetic and accurate than reading into the story of this one maiden and how fucking patriarchal bullshit it is. D&D Swan Mays also struggle with inherent rhetorical baggage. Words like fertility, sorority, purity, and beauty, even when they're talking about swans. In the case of swan maize and bird maidens, swan maize are meek. Swan maize, for me, are inherently almost Finnish. They are a western and tame take on the lore of swan maidens. I don't know where to go with bird maidens. What the fuck? I I don't I don't know what to say. It's self-harm, it's filicide, and the racist undertones in the D Bird Maidens. That, that is the final straw. If you shit on women in DD, fine. I expect that to happen. I can deal with that. But shitting on a people of a different culture, you can fuck right off. Thank fucking God, Bird Maidens were only in 2E. That's all I'm gonna say. Because I have no words for how pissed off I am right now. I mean, that's not true. You just gave us words. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I have no more words. This is all what I wrote down. But like, if I yeah. had to give you any more words... I am. I am. Str- I'm struggling to speak right now. If you can't hear it in my voice, yeah. I, I can't. Oh, I can hear it. Yeah, <laughs> I can hear it. But I mean, yeah. Going off of that, your last point though, I'm gonna disagree with because I can't deal with people shitting on women. <laughs> like my tolerance for people shitting on women is so far gone at this point. I will point it out wherever I see it. If you shit on women, if you shit on people of another culture, if you shit on other races, other cultures, like my tolerance is completely gone for all of that shit, especially after, you know, studying and reading up on D&D all this time. In regards to this episode, there is a very obvious pattern, I think we can now say, with women and their connection to, as you said, nature and specifically the animal kingdom both in real life and in D&D, I think it's something we should 
explore further, either with lycanthropes or other sorts of creatures that we find along our research because, man, if whenever we do an extensive search of it, if we could put that to stats and just show this pattern, that would be great because I think that's important and I think that it needs to be seen. Specifically when it comes to swans, their symbolism dates back to the Bronze Age. They used to be connected with life and death, but also with women intrinsically. But then the patriarchy came around and they fucking ruined it because patriarchy ruins everything and puts people into boxes that shouldn't exist, including a connection with women and purity and love and domesticity, which are all completely valid things on their own, but they shouldn't be the only option for anything that is connected with a woman. Women should have options. People should have options. Things should not be confined to one specific gender. It should have nuance. And it just doesn't when it comes from this patriarchal concept. And then the swan maiden mythology specifically gives these patterns new life. It lets them last from the Bronze Age and from Neolithic Europe until now. And the swan maiden mythology that I saw the most often that I share today, we saw it's rooted in problematic bullshit and patriarchal bullshit. It's rooted in an allegory for, in my opinion, domestic abuse. That's the first thing I thought. And D&D clearly took inspiration from Paul Anderson's version of Swan Maidens, in my opinion, which his version of Swan Maidens were inspired by that allegory of domestic abuse and patriarchal bullshit. So really, D&D Swan Maidens and Bird Maidens have roots in misogynistic male wish fulfillment. I think the through line is pretty clear. Are we surprised? No. But it still sucks to see, and we should still keep talking about it because it's important. It is also important to say that obviously this is not a, just inherently a D&D problem. This is a real world problem, but that doesn't mean it's an excuse. We're not excusing D&D, Gary Gygax, TSR, any of them. Especially when to our knowledge with the bird maidens, it seems like they might have added to man-hating. And if that's true, that's fucked up. And that's another fucked up pattern that D&D has with associating matriarchies, quote unquote, societies of women, sororities with hating men, because that's not what feminism is about. That's not what groups of women usually do. (laughs) You could bitch about men all you want. You could bitch about anybody how you want. But associating groups of women with that trait is toxic and awful. I think 3.5 was on the right path with Swan Maze, but I also think that Wizards of the Coast made the right decision in not continuing them past that because the rhetorical and historic baggage is a lot. And if at your table you want to play with Swan Maze, you're playing an old edition, you want to adapt them, that's okay. You can perhaps play with other themes. I personally really like the image of a goth as fuck Swan May or like a black swan. I think that sounds badass. And like hearkening back to the very old connection to swans and life and death. I think that could be so cool. And like there could be a a whole like you can make Swan May society more akin to that than to their more modern ties to love and purity. Or even if you want to make them tied to love and purity, just think about what you're trying to say with that and what the themes that you're using, what they mean, what they what what you're communicating with your players. And I can also see incorporating this old swan maiden mythology, potentially, if you want to use it as is, as a cathartic experience, but only if everyone is okay at your table doing that. 
because tackling the baggage of swan maidens, either in their D&D form or if you have a version of them that's more akin to the swan maiden, bird maiden, you need safety tools for that stuff. Man, that's a lot of baggage, not only culturally, but also along gender lines and all other sorts of stuff that people might not be okay with. So you got to get their consent for that. But as always, those were our thoughts. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about swan maze, swan maidens, burn maidens. And you can find all of the stuff that we have talked about in our sources at can'tbekilledcreations.com slash sources so you can fact check our asses. Please, again, if you have a minute, rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We have a Patreon where we do monthly lore rewrites about all the problematic stuff in D&D and put our money where our mouth is. This month, I'm doing my first character player background, which is very new for me. <laughs> and I had to do like the AD&D thing of making a bunch of tables. And that was a trip. Uh, so if you that sounds cool to you, we also have After Dark, which we're about to record now, which is our after show. Where we talk about cut content and answer your questions. We have sporadic book club. And uh, if you don't want to join our Patreon, that's totally okay. We're just so, so happy you're listening. You can keep up with us in a bunch of other different ways. We are on social media at Slovenly Trolls on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, Threads, TikTok. And in case you didn't know, because we always forget to plug it on this podcast, we are also on another podcast. We are co-hosts of the Cave Trolls podcast, Trolls spelled exactly like Slovenly Trolls, where we talk about TTRPG news, D&D news, and a more casual way. So if you want to hear more of our opinions about the current events that are going on in the TTRPG space, you can head on over there where we talk about it with our friend Terry. And I believe that's it. Again, thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, we've been the Slovenly Trolls. And don't forget the number one rule of D&D. Don't, don't be, be a, a fucking dick. dick. <laughs> wow. Aggressive. Bye. The Slovenly Trolls podcast is part of the Can't Be Killed Creations podcast network. Make sure to check us out at campykilledcreations.com.